Hello and welcome to Material Matters with me, Grant Gibson. We've been going for two years now, but for listeners who might be new to all this, the idea behind the show is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. In the days before the virus, we visit our guests in their studios or workshops, but for now we're making do with the internet instead. My guest today is Greg Buckbinder, owner of US-based furniture company Emico. I'm going to let Greg explain the company's history in rather more detail shortly, but suffice to say it was founded in 1944 and quickly created the 1006 chair made out of recycled aluminium for the US Navy. The piece has gone on to become a design classic, but its story is far from straightforward. By the time he bought the company in 1998, its factory in Hanover, Pennsylvania was on the verge of closing down. Buckbinder pumped his chest with a roster of high-end designers, the process starting with the launch of the Hudson Chair, created by Philippe Stark in 2000. Since then, the company has gone on to work with the likes of Jean Nouvel, Frank Geary, Michael Young, Jasper Morrison and Nendo, to name just a few. Not only that, but it's been innovative with its use of materials too. In 2010, the company launched a new version of the Navy Chair, made from 111 recycled Coca-Cola bottles finding a new use for plastic that otherwise would have been destined for landfill. Further research into the material led it to produce the on-and-on chair designed by Barbara Osgaby, so called because it could be recycled endlessly. This is a company with a singular vision, and that belongs to Greg. Greg, are you there? I am, Grant. Thank you for the nice introduction. Oh, that's okay. Was it reasonably accurate? It was perfect. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear it. I'm glad to hear it. I mean, I guess the first thing to talk about is how things are in the US from your perspective at the moment. There's a combination of COVID. There's been the election. There's been a storming of the capital. It's been quite a tumultuous time over there. Boy, it sure has. Um, you know, I think as I have had time to sort of reflect, because everything has really slowed down here. Um, you know, you could tell in, in L.A., where I'm based, there's a lot less traffic on the roads. Or There was, really, when the, the pandemic began, no traffic. It was eerie, and everything was closed up. And then with the Black Lives Matter, it was a lot of unrest, and then with the whole election. So it's been really a very strange time in the U.S., and very maybe unsettling time and a very, I think I've had more thoughtful conversations with friends and family than I've ever had. It's really thought provoking. So in some ways, I guess there's kind of a silver lining. So when I think of sustainability and environmental concerns that I have, they've kind of risen up as people have, I mean, with this pandemic, people I think have felt hopeless and they can't do anything. And all of a sudden, in things they can do something about, they've gone out and done it. And I think that's why we've seen so many people participate in Black Lives Matter. And I think we're seeing a lot of people participate and want to do something for the environment. There are conversations about climate change and greenhouse gases. And I think people weren't as involved with before. So I think there is some good that's coming out of this whole you know, crazy period. Well, there is a generation that are growing up as activists, I think, which is interesting because I don't think my generation, when we were at university, were bothered about anything much at all. And that seems to have changed. How's the pandemic been for you personally and for Emico, the company? Personally, I live in um, a place called Alamitos Bay in Long Beach, and it's a quiet town and it's south of Los Angeles. Um, it's 
hasn't changed much in that sense. I think there's more people out of the beach than there is, especially in the wintertime, because I think people are not at work. So, you know, they're hanging out or they're out kayaking or, you know, I see more people active. I mean, there's people swimming, like there's a bay I live and the whole distance around is about a 5K. You know, that's a big swim. And there are now a lot of people doing the swim. Of course, in the wintertime, the water's gotten colder. So if there's swimmers, they're usually in wetsuits. But in the summertime, it, it was just amazing how many people were out and a lot more kayakers out. So in some ways, I mean, I like my little place and I, it was kind of a private little place that nobody knew about. And all of a sudden you get these kayakers that, you know, there's a kayak rental and there's like 30, 40 kayakers out. And in some ways you feel like, you know, this is my little place. But then it's really interesting because one day I saw all these kayakers out and some dolphins surfaced out of the bay. And the people in the kayak were going, whoa! You know, it was just like, <laughs> it's amazing to see these really large animals right by your your little mm. kayak and, and they're completely free. And then as they rose up again, you could hear applause. It just struck me right then. There's a, a new appreciation that you get when you're out in nature. It made me realize, you know, it's a good thing. It's a good thing that people are out here and they're appreciating it. And I think it will make them more aware and and more concerned about taking care of it. Well, just in terms of the business, I'm intrigued as well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you've been able to continue manufacturing or how does that work? We were the governor of uh, Pennsylvania where Emico is located, forced all uh, businesses to shut down for a, a period of time. So we had several months, we had to shut our doors. And that was really a challenging time, certainly. If you can't produce product, we're running. Um, we're fortunate we've been able to keep all of our people employed and it's definitely a challenging time. On the flip side, let me explain how Emico is kind of set up. I live in LA and that's the west coast of the US. Emico is on the east. We're about, we're a long flight away. And in 20 years ago, when I first started uh, doing Emico, I would go to Emico maybe twice a month. And but what I came to realize is when I would hire people, I decided, you know, I don't really care where they live. I care about hiring the very best people. And we started to create a team and the team was kind of based in different countries, uh, in different states. So COVID closed us down as a team, like our leadership team. There's 12 people. We get on a Zoom call once a week. We're all used to working at home. I mean, this is how we've always worked. But what we didn't do is we just started having these weekly calls. We had never done that before because we just always talked to each other. We would Skype each other. We'd call, but we did it individually. And when we all of a sudden, for I guess just because it was everybody was, you know, getting Zoom calls and they said, why don't we have a team call? I was just amazed because all of a sudden you have everybody on the team listening to, you know, the people from product development, the people from operations, the people from marketing, and everybody's connected. And they're all talking about the same topic from a different lens. And one, it made me really appreciate what an incredible team we have. I just realized we have an amazing team and what we're doing now 
in some way, well, first I feel like this is the very best team I've ever had. I do think, again, from everything we talked about from the very beginning of this talk, all these things came together that it helped us become a closer team. And I think what you'll see is what we're able to produce together and launch together as a team will be significantly better than anything Emicos has ever done. As a company, I'm really excited. What about the people working in the actual factory itself? I mean, presumably you've had to rejig how they work, be socially distant. How complicated has that been? You know, it's not too complicated in the sense that Emico is a huge factory. I mean, in the old days, we would have train cars pull up into the factory. They load up like 10,000 chairs at a time and they take the chairs to the shipyards where ships were fitted out. And there were 600 people working at the factory. Now we have 10% of that. So we have plenty of space in the sense we're spread out. So it's roomy. It's roomy. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody um, is mindful. We're using when we're together, when they're together, they have a distance of six feet and they wear masks and everybody's washing their hands and we're eating in separate areas. But for the most part, when the craftsmen are working on their areas, whether they're bending tube or welding or grinding or heat treating, they have a very large space. So it really hasn't affected our ability to produce product. Mm, mm. I mean, should we talk about the company first, Greg? Okay. The Electrical Machine and Equipment Company It was founded in 1944 by Wilton Carlisle Dinges. Initially, I mean, it was looking at doing experimental antennas and jet engine parts. But subsequently, he bought some scrap aluminium and landed a meaty contract with the U.S. Navy. The company creates the 1006 or the Navy chair. But what was the Navy's brief and what are the characteristics of that chair? Well, the Navy's brief was like no other brief you can believe because they had some real stringent requirements. The constraints they had for their brief were multiple. So they needed a chair that would withstand any of the weather. So it, it needed to withstand the, the salt air out at sea. So it had to be corrosion resistant. They needed a chair that was not going to affect the instrumentation. So they needed something non-magnetic. They needed a chair that wouldn't catch on fire. Fires on a Navy ship are lethal. They needed a chair that was super strong and durable because the sailors out at sea would, would destroy anything. So they had all these constraints and they wrote some specifications. I mean, the thickness and the anodized coating and the kind of welds. And it was very, very elaborate what they needed for a product. Emico produced something that was so good, that was so robust, that performed so well. They started making it standard issue for all warships, battleships, aircraft carriers, submarines. They even started using it in, in Navy hospitals and Navy prisons. So it became a, a very successful company back in the 40s and the 50s. Well, I remember reading that it was used in prisons, partly because prisoners couldn't break them apart and use them as a weapon or stab anybody like they could with a timber chair. Well, yeah, and we'll talk about that. And part of it is in order to make this chair so good, it had to go through a, a very elaborate process. The process, you end up with a chair with absolutely no connection. So there's no screws or bolts or anything to dismantle it. So you end up with this solid piece of aluminum that's just so strong. So that's kind of how it got there. But, mm. you know, 
to make the material at the time or to make the chair at the time, there wasn't enough aluminum available. They were, you know, the aluminum was going to making aircraft and other kinds of war products. And there was scrap drives in America and Americans felt patriotic. So they were contributing glass and paper and, and, and aluminum. And from this aluminum, 80% recycled aluminum goes into this chair. And with this process, it's a 77-step process, you end up with something that was tested the last 150 years. It's really extraordinary. And it, it, you know, it's kind of that heritage is something we look at today. So that Navy chair, that 1006, it's kind of the bar we look at for anything we produce. So the recycling element was kind of practical rather than philosophical in that sense. Absolutely. Yeah. You mentioned the 77 different processes. Obviously, I don't want to talk about all 77 here and now because we'll be here for some time. But maybe can you give us an overview sure. of how you manufacture a chair? So the aluminum comes in our back door and it comes in sheets and it comes in extruded tubes. And the aluminum is, we get it zero tempered. That's soft the molecules are spread apart and it will bend fairly easily. That allows us to go into the first area and bend the tube so it bends smoothly so there's no, it won't crack, it won't dent. So if you look at an aluminum chair from Emico, the curves are all very smooth. Then we take the parts and it goes over to welding and we TIG weld. So there's a rod in one hand and a torch in another hand. And these craftsmen will weld the chair basically together. The welds are then taken to an area called grinding. The guys have a grinding wheel and they grind the big welds. They grind the, the majority of the weld off so it's smooth. Then when we weld this soft aluminum, there's hard spots created because the molecules will harden in those areas where we've welded. So in order to make the molecules uniform throughout the whole chair, we take the chair and we put it in a hot boiling salt bath. It's around 957 degrees Fahrenheit. I'm not sure what centigrade is. And it's to the point where the aluminum almost melts. It softens it up. The molecules get realigned. It's then taken into cold water. It's quenched. And the molecules kind of, it's like, like a nail going through a board. And it sort of takes it from zero temper to T4. So it goes to soft to semi-hard. And in that stage, we're able to take the chair and make sure everything's aligned, make sure the legs are straight, make sure everything is just how we want it. And then we put it into an aging oven overnight at 350 degrees Fahrenheit. And in eight hours, it ends up going to T6 in hardness. Now it's fully hard like a mountain bike frame. So it's a super hard frame. Then we hand finish it with... Um, a Santaflex machine. It's a machine that puts the brush finish on all the areas. Then it goes into anodizing. That's an oxidizing of the outside layer. It's a hard coating. So it's as hard as diamonds when it's done. It's, it's durability in, in any kind of weather condition. So those are the main processes that it goes through. It sounds like there's an awful lot of handwork. You're looking at industrial craftsmen making this product. Has that process changed since it was first designed? Hasn't changed at all. Mm. You know, it's interesting because as Emico competes with a lot of different kinds of chairs, a lot of nobody puts this kind of work into a product. 
Emico is a maker, and inside of Emico's under one roof, we have all these different departments that do all this work, and it's a lot of work, and it's time-consuming, it's expensive. A chair that's injection molded takes, you know, three, four minutes to make. An Emico chair could take two to four hours to make. Mm. It's very hard with that kind of labor to compete with a chair that is just stamped out of, you know, injection mold out of plastic. You know, it's always been on my mind, how can we make this process quicker? How can we cut steps out of the process? And it's really the people that created this process back in the day of Wilton Dingus, the, who was an engineer, it's a chemistry situation. The, the material, the alloy of the aluminum, all these things were consideration. I mean, aluminum has about seven different kinds of alloys, the 1000 series through 7000 series. And different alloys are good for different purposes, for welding, for anodizing, for heat treating. And so when these guys set up the process, they took this into consideration. So aluminum alloys, you know, it's got silicone and magnesium and all these other chemicals that go into it. And the percentages change depending upon the use. So what I have discovered over the years is all the steps are critical. The chair that's made today is identical to what it was made like back in, in the 40s with a slight exception. Couple things. One is the welds. When we started to ship the chairs to architects and designers would do it for a restaurant or a hotel and they'd get these chairs and they'd see the welds were kind of a little bit clunky. We have since smoothed them out. That's one thing that's changed. So you'll see a really old original Emico chair and the welds will be a lot more noticeable. And the other thing is uh, actually it was with Terence Conrad. He used our chairs in one of his restaurants in London and he contacted us and he said, the chairs are marking up the floors. And the oldest chairs we had in the day, they had neoprene glides that were made for Navy ships and they would kind of keep the chairs from sliding when the ships would roll. But they'd also, they were black neoprene and they would mark up floors. So we have changed the glides since that time so they don't mark up people's floors. Right, right. The company has this hugely successful chair that you've talked about how it was made, but then things begin to go wrong. So what happened? Well, the biggest thing that happened is the Cold War ended and the Navy stopped buying chairs. And not only did they stop buying chairs, when they would bring Navy ships in and mothball them, they'd keep the chairs because the chairs were made so well, they'd last so long, they really didn't need more chairs. So that was a, you know, a, a huge problem. And really, Emico really just, they made a few different versions, but basically the 1006, the Navy chair, was their product. Well, then your father buys the company in 1979. So what did he see in it, Greg? I think he'd come across the company before while he was doing some work with the Navy. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Originally, my dad was an engineer and he opened up a little welding shop. And uh, he had one employee. And when we were kids, you know, we got to play around in the shop and play with the tools. And it was kind of a cool thing. And he worked with companies doing understructures and doing metal structures for different kind of projects. He even did, you know, there was a company here, Herman Miller, and he did prototypes for them. So some of the prototypes were for Charles Eames. So I grew up in a house full of old rejects and stuff that are now prototypes. But 
you know, they'd go to a trade show and they'd give my dad all these chairs or he'd have these projects. I remember in the garage, we had all these fiberglass shell chairs with the rubber mounts were he needed to find an adhesive that would keep them glued on. And he had all these clamps and all these other things. So we had a house full of kind of uh, very interesting chairs at the time. So he was exposed and knew about furniture and he was doing, actually he was doing a project for the US Navy and he was making metal stanchions that would weld down to the deck and they'd put chairs on top of the, the stanchions and the tabletops and they would be like for the mess hall. So again, as the ship would roll, all that furniture was welded down to the deck. And one of the companies that was a client of his built out ships and they had uh, one of their suppliers was Emico and they really needed the aluminum chairs and Emico at the time was not doing well and Emico was going out of business. And so they contacted my dad to see if he'd be interested in trying to keep this thing going. He took me out to Emico. So when I was like 22 years old, I got to uh, see Amico for the first time. Well, I was interested in that because you were leaving college about the time that he bought the company. Right. And I'm wondering if that timing gave you a special interest in Amico. What gave me a special interest wasn't that really, but was my mom always had like design magazines and she did interiors and she was a painter and did art and she'd have these, you know, Italian design magazines. And I remember looking through her magazines and seeing it was like Domus magazine. And I, I saw at the time, you know, I learned who Ettore Satsas was and he was doing Esprit stores and he had uh, done some like beautiful yachts and people's homes and he was putting those chairs in them. And when I saw that as a kid, that I thought really cool because, yeah. you know, Emico, it was a military contractor. That's what they were. They weren't a cool company. They were just, you know, they made this product. So what intrigued me mostly was that it looked beautiful in, in some of these installations. And it was just, I thought it was great. And so when I got to go to the factory, it was real eye-opening to see how elaborate this process was to make it and, and, and really a true appreciation for what these craftsmen, you know, their skills. Mm, mm. Can we talk about, about your background? Because you got a degree in business, but did you have a plan, I wonder? Were you always going to join your family firm? Surfing seems to crop up quite a lot in your childhood <laughs> from all the clippings I've read, Greg. Well, not only did it crop up, it was funny because my dad, I remember when I was young, I grew up in Huntington Beach and so we lived in this area where it was a little island and I would take my surfboard and I would paddle across from our island to the next island and then paddle across to the beach side and I'd surf every morning. And that beach is right where Sunset Beach meets Huntington Beach. There's a little place there where I'd surf every morning. That was where I thought I'd want to open up a surfboard shop. I'll surf every morning. I'll make surfboards and I'll do that. So my dad would talk to me about that and you know, so that was my big vision in life. I would be, uh, I'd surf and I'd have a surfboard shop. So that was, uh, <laughs> you know, my background. And I ended up going to college and, you know, I took business classes. I, I really enjoyed design and art. And I always took as my fun classes were always, you know, drawing or color or, or anything involved with design was my, my real interest. It seems reading your story that there are kind of two 
key men in your life and career. One is Philippe Stark, and, and the other was your father. And we'll get on to Stark shortly, but can we just spend a bit of time on your father? Because you've described him as my mentor, a charismatic leader who saw a positive side to everything. You bought Emico from him eventually in 1998. What was the financial state of the company by that point? Oh, at that time, it was uh, it was losing a lot of money every year. So it wasn't something he was able to really afford to keep going. But I came to the factory that year, and I had walked through the factory, and it was it was in really poor condition, and mm. the roof was leaking, and you know it, it was a skeleton crew, and people were pretty dispirited and wondering when the company would close. I mean, how much debt are we talking? Can you tell us? It was losing about $500,000 a year. Right. Okay. It was just getting buried in debt. So, you know, we were at a point where suppliers weren't getting paid. And it was funny because I had walked into the front office um, after walking through the factory and there was a woman, a Russian woman on the phone and she said, no, we will not ship your chairs. You send us the money first. And, you know, she, they needed the money to pay the payroll. And you know, hung up the phone and I said, Paulina, who was that? And she said, oh, some guy, Giorgio Mani. <laughs> and I was going, God. And I started looking through the file cabinet and I started to see, you know, that's when I, I realized people like uh, Terrence Conran had discovered Emico. And, you know, that was uh, when I thought, this is a cool company. And if we can refocus the efforts on not the U.S. Navy, but on architects and designers, I think there's potential for this company. Mm. And what did your dad make of your plans? Um, he, you know, again, he was a, a supportive guy. But, you know, again, it was a situation where he felt like, you know, it's a very large factory. And when you have to heat it in the wintertime and keep it going, it's expensive to keep it going. So it's very difficult. And also faced with you know, he, we had a, a chair that was very expensive to make. And as every year, the market would get more and more difficult to compete. And price has always become tougher and tougher. He thought it was a very difficult road. But I was at a point in my life that it was, you know, it was a challenge. Mm. I was ready to take it on. And did you argue over it? Or was he always supportive? We definitely, um, we argued, but we... Um, on weekends, we would get together and we used to ride our bikes down uh, Pacific Coast Highway, you know, from his house in Huntington Beach down to Laguna Beach and, you know, with a group of friends and have a cappuccino. So that was like one of our favorite things to do on, on weekends. So we had a, a very great relationship, but it was also when it came to work, we were both determined and we, we were very similar people. Mm hmm. And then there was this horrendous accident, Greg. I hope you don't mind talking about this in 2002, when you were both riding on a tandem and you were hit by a car. You broke your neck and your father, who was only 69 years old, died. I mean, it must have been horrendous. It was. It was, it was, uh, it was a very, very difficult time in my life. It was, uh, I'd lost uh, someone that I cared dearly about and, and, and the circumstances were very difficult. So... It took me a long time to kind of get past that and and uh, and go on. Did it change the perception? I mean, both of your life in general, but also of the company. I wonder. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it did. I'm, I don't know how 
other people perceived it, but there was a point in time where I was in the hospital and I had a halo on my head, this thing. If you look at my head, I still have some scars in my forehead where this thing is bolted into your head mm. and it's to hold your head straight so that the bones could heal. Super painful thing. But I realized at the time that, you know, I had been traveling all over the place and, I, you know, we, we had started to sell chairs in other countries and I had distributors I was setting up in Europe and uh, I'd meet Philippe Stark in, in different uh, places and I realized, God, I'm going to probably not be able to, to travel so much. And it was funny because right about that time, we had a, a installation that was in Frank Gehry's offices for, I don't know, it was, it was like a hundred and... 20 Philippe Stark's Hudson chairs for his offices. So I had gone down to his offices because, you know, I, I was curious what they were using the chairs for, number one. And number two, I also was like, boy, wouldn't it be cool if we can work with someone like Frank Gehry on a chair? And so partly being in the hospital bed and being laid up, it's got me thinking about what I can do more on a local basis. Interesting. I mean, the other person that kind of came into your life a few years before that was Stark, and I think it's important that we talk about him. I was at the European launch of the chair that you produced together in 2000, the, the Hudson. It was a breakfast in Milan, as I recall. I was editing a magazine called Blueprint at the time, not particularly convincingly, but there you go. <laughs> I have to say, I didn't come with huge expectations. I'd had a bit of a night the night before, and so I did come with a significant hangover, as I recall. <laughs> But you made this fascinating couple, Greg. I mean, Stark was obviously a veteran of these kind of occasions, and uh, he's a great storyteller. And I remember you looking kind of quite wide-eyed at the whole thing, like it was a completely different planet you just landed in. Do you think that's a fair summation? It's a very fair summation. It was a culture shock for me. I mean, here I am, first time to Milan, and we had met in New York at uh, the Mercer Hotel, and we're having some wine or something, and we're talking about how to launch this chair and what to do. And he said, um, we'll get a truck and we'll have billboards on the truck and the truck will drive around to all the best parties. And on the billboards, we'll put a picture of the chair and then the billboard will flip and it will say heritage against recycling. And I've, heritage against recycling to me initially sounded like not such a good thing. I said, Philippe, Philippe, what do you mean by heritage against recycling? He said, when you make something so well, you never have to recycle it. And you know, that was 20 years ago. And it's so true. It's, you know, he's such a smart guy and he's taught me so much. And anyway, then we were going to do a press conference and he connected me up to the right people. And we ended up having a press conference in Carla Fendi's private showroom that you were at. That's where I was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's such an elegant place. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. I remember that because it was, you know, I was pretty nervous about the whole thing. And we had, you know, like a hundred people showing up to this press conference and everybody's kind of waiting around for Stark to show up. And it's, you know, he spoke, he's not there. And it's, I think it was a nine o'clock start, something like that. So it, it was, was pretty early. early. It was, it was yeah. early, yeah. <laughs> and they said, where's Philippe at? And he wasn't there. And so I, uh, I called him. He answers the phone. And I said, Philippe, I said, um, we're about ready to start. Are you coming? And he said, what, what? And he was in his hotel room <laughs> and he said, I was, it was, fortunately, it was really close. He said, oh, I'll be right there. <laughs> <laughs> and 
he walks in, I mean, completely no preparation, no discussions, no anything. And he just starts into his basically one hour lecture. I sat there and I truly was watching this guy talk about what we did and how we did it and the sweat and the the hand and he had gone to the amoco factory and he told our guys how much our product was appreciated but he was so good and as i listened to him i learned so much about ourselves just go, listening to stark talk about what we did and why it was significant that was really an amazing um, time for me. So that's where it all began. You're right, where Stark presented it. Well, it was fascinating because, I mean, he'd increasingly be doing these one-liners in plastic, you know, which were funny for a moment, but literally often throwaway. But this chair was, I mean, it was kind of brilliant. It was, I, I, I remember writing, it was the best thing I'd seen at the fair. I mean, how did you start meeting in the first place? How did the Hudson begin initially? Yeah, you know, I was uh, decided I needed to find customers for our chairs. And I took a Navy chair and went to New York and I was in Soho and I went from store to store to shop to shop to see if anybody, any of the furniture people, anybody was interested, really didn't get a whole lot of interest. And at the time was uh, the furniture for ICFF at the Javits Center. And I went over to the Javits Center and uh, I was walking up and down the aisles just to check out who was there. And I had stayed at a hotel that Stark had done, the Paramount Hotel. He did it with Ian Schrager. And I did it on purpose because I saw it when I went through our books that we had shipped chairs there. And I wanted to see what it looked like. And there was a mezzanine and there were some chairs in a cafe. And he had a slip cover over the chairs with like an axe on the back of it. And so I said, when I, I was walking up and down in the Javits Center and I ran into Philippe, he was walking. I said, Mr. Stark, I said, um, I said, I love what you did with our chairs at the Paramount Hotel. He said, oh, what chair? I said, the Navy chair. He said, oh, he said, what do you do for them? And I said, well, I own the company. He said, oh, I thought it would be a bunch of old military men. <laughs> and uh, he said, you know, I've always dreamed of doing a chair for Emico. Would you be interested? I said, I'd be interested, but we don't have the money to pay you. And he said, no, let's sit down. Let's talk about it. And that night we sat down and I still have the magazine that he drew all these sketches of what he had thought about. It. And he had drawn the, the Hudson chair. And, you know, it was um, pretty amazing because part of our conversation was I was concerned about him taking the 1006 chair. And Stark has done some wild things and put horns on things and done things. And he said, no, no. He said, he's done big garden gnomes. Let's face that's it. That's right. That's right. But he said, I'm going to make something even more neutral than the Navy chair and which he did. And so the, the Hudson chair is just smooth back. It really has no design. But the one thing he did add is he wanted to make it polished and we tried and tried. And fortunately we were close to a company called Harley Davidson and they had guys that knew how to polish. They taught us how to take that aluminum and polish it up right. So that allowed us to really get the, the chairs polished. And that was a big innovation for us uh, to learn how to polish. And what did your team in the factory make of all this? Presumably you had staff there who'd been <laughs> doing fundamentally the same thing for 30 years or something. Did they take to it? Y you know, yeah, it was really exciting because they, one, when Stark came out, he's great. And he, he came out with a film crew and some French guys and they would walk around and they would talk about things. And 
he had a microphone in his glasses to record what he was saying. And <laughs> the whole thing was so much fun. And in fact, one of the guys, when he was retiring, I said, what's one of your best memories of working at Amico? He's, oh, the time that Phil came here. He said, that was great. And, you know, so he told the guys how good they were and how important it was. And it was, the, he said, the chair you make is the most important chair in the world. It's the best made chair it's ever been made. And he said, you guys should be very proud of the work you're doing. And I mean, to hear that from a, a very international French guy in this little town in Hanover, it was just interesting because we all of a sudden went from this stodgy, utilitarian, industrial producer to this very cool design brand overnight. Being the toast of to the town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Subsequently, you've gone on to work with a, a slew of kind of big name designers, but they're very different if you look through the list. You know, I can see a link between Nendo and Jasper Morrison, but they're completely different from Stark and, let's say, Frank Geary. So how do you go about choosing who you're going to work with? I wasn't very strategic at all. And, and of course, you know, <laughs> we had no marketing or, or anybody. It was all based on just chemistry and gut feel and opportunity. You know, it was, it was just my curiosity. I mean, to work with a guy like Frank Geary, was so exciting because he walked me through and he showed me all these models and buildings they were doing. And this one man, truly a genius, who really was doing the, the kind of projects he was doing, and then would sit down with me and work on this, this chair. I felt so uh, almost like I didn't want to take up his time because it was like so unimportant compared to the kind of things he was doing. But he said things to me like, you know, a chair is about the hardest thing you could do. And he was pushing us towards doing things we had never done with a chair. He wanted to make the chair, he called this the super light, and he was inspired by Gioponte's super leggera. And he wanted to make the chair move. So when he sat in the aluminum chair, he wanted to move so it was comfortable. He said, so they make airplane wings move with the aluminum and buildings move with aluminum. He said, I want the chair to flex. So when you sit down, it moves with the aluminum. So that was a whole new thing to do with the material. I guess the one thing that I like about working with these different people was they pushed Emiko to use and learn more about the aluminum. So we learned so much more every time we work with someone new. They brought things to us and they challenged us but they are all quite big names though greg aren't they you're not taking a punt on somebody new particularly um no partly a, a, so a couple things when you're working with people like norman foster um he's such a technician and an engineering you know was his thing and he wanted to make the very lightest chair the least amount of material and the strongest possible and we would make a chair and we have the extrusion pretty small. And he said, let's make it smaller, make it smaller. And he got to the point where it was like, this won't be strong enough. And he said, okay, let's make the inside of the tube thicker. So visually, it looks very, very skimpy. But the internal, the invisible parts of it were stronger. You know, again, it pushed us to start thinking about how can we use the least amount of material in what we do? How can we leverage some of the things we do in this extraordinary process? So again, always learning something new from anybody we work with. And you get that from these guys that have done amazing things with, especially with aluminum. I was interested in working with people 
that had incredible experiences to kind of push us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're quite blokey as well, I notice, on your list. I mean, it's Andre Putnam and Kim Colin, but there's a lot of beards and bald heads otherwise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, there, there were, but, you know, again, it's partly not, there was never a list of people that I wanted to work with. It was more like, you know, an elevator ride and you meet somebody and you start talking and you realize someone really inspires me. And, and it, I, I connect up because I think I've always had this rule at Emico, no assholes. And part of that is I like to work with people that I like. I've encouraged everybody in any area when we're hiring people, hire people that we like. And I just think it's so important to do that. And so with the designers I've worked with, I mean, we've developed really great friendships. And to me, it makes the projects fun. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess the, the next giant step you took was working with Coca-Cola, which I think was 2010, the product came out which is working on a new version of the Navy chair made from recycled plastic bottles. I mean, that came about through an introduction from Paolo Antonelli from MoMA, I believe, who's been on this show before. It's an interesting one, again, because when I first heard you were doing it, and I think it was in Milan, I initially dismissed it as a bit of a marketing stunt because you get quite a few of those during that week, right? But it's interesting because when the company approached you, you initially turned them down, I think I'm right in saying. Right, right. Yeah, I did. I, I felt the same as you did, Grant. I felt like Coca-Cola, I've seen their tables and chairs and umbrellas with Coca-Colas all over them. And we were, at the time, have established ourselves as a, as a serious chair producer. And I wasn't interested in doing any promotional products. It was really interesting because I, I had an executive call me from Coca-Cola who explained to me, he said, you know, there's going to be billions of our bottles that end up in landfills or, or the ocean. It's, it's so important for us to help people understand this material can be upcycled and made into something that is a valuable product. And we need to be able to figure that out. And that got me excited because, again, the whole idea of keeping plastic bottles out of the ocean, you know, for me, when I see in, in the harbor, I, and I still see plastic bottles floating in the bay, it really is disheartening. And I just thought it just was really encouraging for me to think we could do something that really has a positive impact. And we've now over 70 million bottles we've kept out of the landfill, just Emico. But we've gotten, we've had conversations and we get phone calls from a lot of really big brands that want to know about how to use the material and what we do and how we do it. We really learned a lot. I mean, you know, it's funny because I was afraid of trying something new because we had no expertise in it and people knew us for our aluminum chairs. And I just thought, this is a big jump for us. And I was really concerned about making it, but now we're kind of gotten so into it. I mean, there's things like when I see things about using, people always ask me, hey, Greg, why don't you use ocean plastic? And I mean, ocean plastic and the size of islands floating in the Pacific, it sounds like you could just go out there and pick this stuff up and it's just not that easy. I mean, using plastic that we use, we get it from reclamation centers. And we have pretty consistent supply. But even with consistent supply, making that 111 chair was very difficult. It's still way less consistent than virgin material. We had to run the temperatures way hotter. Our reject rate was astronomical. So we ended up not being very successful financially because we just had so many rejects. 
And also we had like blemishes in the finish because it just wastes material. At the time, I thought, well, that's part of the charm of the product. People will know that's what's so interesting and cool about it because it's made from waste. Until we had a container load of chairs rejected that we shipped to Japan because they didn't want blemishes in their chairs. And I, I realized at the time, you know, we have to figure out if we're going to be successful with this, how to mold this material so that we could mold it at lower temperatures, so we can mold it faster, so we can remove blemishes. So from 2006, when we start working with chemists and, and material scientists on how to really work with this and how to engineer this material. So it took four years, in other words. It took four years just to launch the 111. And even at that time, that material, we still kept working on it. And year after year, we kept working on it because we just needed to reduce the amount of rejects we had. And every time we had a reject, we could grind the material up and we could use a small percentage to put into the big vat of material to make the next chairs. So after about 16 years of really trying to work on that material and work on the material, we, we've got the material down to where it's gotten really good. But it took us a long time. Mm. I mean, it must be a mammoth task. Presumably the whole factory had to be retooled. Staff had to learn new skills. Yeah. Well, we have a, like a new type of skills too. Like our engineers, we have two incredibly talented people and they call themselves Femico because they're two women that run our engineering and they're, they're really, really good. They've learned all about tool making and injection molding and there's not that many tools that are made in the U.S. So had to go overseas and work with different suppliers and how to, to work with the people in all kinds of different facets, the tool designers, the material designers. And so when Emiko's designing a, or when someone's designing a chair, when Emiko's making a chair, it's not just what most companies do. It's not the aesthetics. It's the design of the material. It's the design of the tooling. It's the design of the process. It's the design of the packaging. All of these things go into consideration. And it's the design of what happens to it when the chair isn't needed anymore. Yeah. So yeah. can it be reused? Can it be recycled again? So design at Amico is not just, you know, a designer that we meet with. We have a whole team we build around that designer. So when we're working with someone like Barbara Oscoby, we have a whole team of people who are contributing to that whole process. Certainly Ed and Jay, they're coming up with a great visual and an idea and a concept and a way to communicate what we're doing in a really smart way. And then it takes our team to, to make it work. I was interested because initially, I mean, Ed and Jay obviously did the on and on chair, which is what made of 70% recycled plastic. And the notion is that you can take it back to you to get it recycled. So basically this, this thing is constantly, you know, it can be constantly recycled interested initially when you started using the recycled coca-cola bottles that you did a version of the navy chair that was a conscious decision we weren't going to add new design to this we're going to look at an old model and and in a different material because this project to us it was a project about material it was a project that we wanted people to really think about the material we're using and not be thinking about the design the design it was from the 40s and it was nothing new as far as the shape. 
it was all about really the material. And that was what we were really most interested in is being able to get people to realize we can take waste plastic bottles, grind it up and make it into a structurally sound product. That was really the, the goal of what we were after, what we achieved. You've also done a version of the Navy chair in solid wood, <laughs> working with the, uh, the local Amish community, as one does. How did that come about? You know, it's funny because I'm always, you know, I hear these old stories about where the original Navy chair came from the design. And back in the day, it was anonymous. It wasn't a, a designer. It was like there was a staff of draftsmen that would draw up all the, you know, the chairs and there was scientists and, but there was not a design wasn't really thought about as being an occupation even. And someone said there was probably an admiral. He had a favorite chair and it was probably made of wood. And when someone said, what shall it look like? He just, you know, pointed to that chair and said, make it look like that. That's, that's the stories I've heard. And, you know, when you look at the process and how difficult it is to make the Navy chair out of aluminum, you realize that it probably was made in a different material back in some days. So it was kind of a nod to originally how this chair was originally conceived and making it that way. So it, it was kind of a fun thing. The Amish angle, I'm, I'm also intrigued by Greg. How did that come about? It actually came about because we've got these Amish guys that there's a whole community. It's in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and it's about <laughs> 30, 40 minutes from the factory. And we started getting some interest in doing something in wood. And, and we did a, a project with Jasper Morrison where he took the recycled material we did, the WPP, the wood polypropylene we used on broom with Stark or the chair, because he liked that material. And then the base of it was made in wood. And we asked the, the Amish guys if they could help us make the base part of it. And they're great. And they have the same kind of philosophy that Emigra does. Everything is really very simple, straightforward. There's no waste in their operation. They're very skilled woodworkers. And we've done other things with them. Like when we work with Nendo, they took some old barn wood and they made some seat bottoms for us for the the Sioux project. It's interesting having them as our neighbors because that's very complimentary to to what we do and what we need them for. Yeah, yeah, no, it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, look, we're coming to the end of our time. I've taken up ages. So uh, last couple of questions. It's quite intriguing when you read the press clippings. There, there are lots of companies doing knockoff versions of what you do. And you're quite vocal and quite litigious, I would suggest. This is a consciously adopted policy, I take it. Yeah, it is. I mean, I've had situations where it's been rather just extreme where, you know, there's a company in the U.S. called Restoration Hardware, and they, mm -hmm. they basically published a magazine with our whole Navy collection, you know, the Navy chairs, the Navy bar stools, the Navy chairs with arms, and rather than the Navy chair, it was called the Naval chair, and it had our history. <laughs> they not only took the chair design, but they also took everything about us and they created it. And I realized if we didn't fight fights like that, we would lose our company because they were having it made in China and bringing it over here. And it was going to be a very low cost. And visually, it looked identical. But in that, all those steps we talked about, they skipped like they didn't use the heat treating process. So the chairs wouldn't last as long and they didn't do the anodization. And, and a lot of things that were so important and key were left off to keep the prices down. 
So it was real important for us to to protect it. And we have trade dress protection on the Navy chair, which is the strongest form of protection you can have. So we were in a very good position to be able to fight. Mm. I'm always intrigued by this. It's interesting to get your point of view, really. Would you ever consider taking a different route by introducing lower entry point level pieces? I mean, Fender spring to mind. Are there an example of a company where the Strat was being knocked off by the Japanese in the 80s and it fought back by opening its own Japanese factory and did the Fender Squire series, which was cheaper than an American Fender, but still a well-made guitar that kind of introduced people to the brand with the notion that they would then right. want the actual, you know, full American Fender. Is that something you'd ever consider? It actually is what we've done. So with the 1006 Navy chair, it's all aluminum and the 111 uh, Navy chair, same chair, and it's made in injection molded and it's at least half the price. And we've done it now. We did a collection with Jasper Morrison that's called One Inch. We did it with aluminum frame and different kinds, either wood seat and back or plastic seat and back or upholstered seat and back. But then we did the same version in all plastic, which is very economical. It's, it's our lowest cost chair but probably one of our best chairs we've ever done from a standpoint of mass production. So yes, we've done that, Grant, and it's, it's ironic because most people think of Emico as being a very expensive chair company, but we do have products that are also affordable. Very good. I have taken up ages. So final question, Greg, plans for the future. What can we expect from you? What's happened to Emico House on Venice Beach? Is that open? <laughs> Uh, it's not open yet. <laughs> no, Emico House is, is a, it's a kind of a fun project and it started off, you know, I've been traveling a lot because we've been selling Emico in over 60 countries. So it gave me reason to really go exploring. And I remember being in Tokyo and walking in this really cool neighborhood and seeing this old shack. And I thought it'd be so cool to have an Emico House here where people could come and see our product and, you know, a place that I could stay. And that had always been a dream, no matter where I was traveling, whether I was in London or whether I was in Paris, and in those cool little edgy neighborhoods that are, you know, full of designers has always attracted me. A couple of years ago, I was, my daughter's living in Venice Beach, and I was in Venice Beach, and I thought, yeah, why don't I do that here? Anyway, there's a, a little small area that's a live-work area full of creatives and filmmakers and painters and it's just a great little area and, and we're working on an old sewing shop and taking that sewing shop and creating a, a zero energy a preservation adaptation of uh, of all the materials and we're doing everything that we did to make a chair so we're considering every material that goes into this and using non-toxins and using materials that will last a long time and it's just about completed it's, it'll be a place that we could come and talk about the factory. We'll have a studio downstairs and upstairs, a place for people to, uh, to stay. That's exciting. And it's, it's, we'll be done with it in a couple months. And we've got, uh, actually later this month, a couple weeks, I think it's February 24th. We have a really great project that we're going to launch with Naoto Fukusawa and he did something that's that's so very Emico. It looks like something that probably we could have been building since the the start of the company and in the 40s. And so I'm excited to uh, to share that. And it, he's used all of our 
processes and, and everything we're so we're so known for. Well, very good. That sounds very exciting. Greg, thank you so much for your time. I have so much respect for you and, the, and everything you've done with the company. It's been a joy talking to you. Thanks, Grant. Talk to you later. Bye. And to discover more about Greg and Emiko, go to emiko.net. As ever, there are images from the interviews, as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. And you can find all the podcasts that I've done, sign up to my newsletter and lots of other stuff at grantondesign.com. Finally, and this is really important, if you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And it would make me really happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. You'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks so much for listening and please stay safe and well.